Welcome everybody to episode 162 of the Metabolas 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben. And I am David. And season 13, we are just going to dive straight into the 13th season of Doctor Who, Tom Baker's second season. So I had an immediate question yeah. following on from last week's mm-hmm. questioning. Mm-hmm. Did you find the Terror of the Zygons to be convincingly set in the Highlands of Scotland? Uh, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been explained to me since then that why this couldn't possibly be Scotland, mainly be lack of mountains, hills, you know. Yeah, it's, it's not rather, really... It's a, rather flat. <laughs> yeah, it's not really what around... I mean, the, the kind of heathland is kind of convincing and they mm-hmm. go with pine trees which mm-hmm. is also is not nicely convincing uh, but if you've ever been to Loch Ness you'll realize that it's a, it's a, it's an inland fjord yes so it's necessarily surrounded by mountains yeah so that yeah. it's uh, going going to Inverness Loch Ness area has always been on my wish list of travel I just never uh-huh. never made it there it's one of the one of the things as a kid growing up, I always wanted to go see Loch Ness, just mainly it's, because of the monster. But it's 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 cool up there. Yeah, yeah. Have you stayed there or vacationed, holidayed there? Or? Um, I've been there a couple of times, but not for like thirty years, mm-hmm. maybe even forty years now. Well, um, I doubt. I doubt, I doubt it's changed a huge amount. Well, Nessie is immortal. Well, apparently it is. It is a an immortal creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you remember, I, I guess, I, I mean, this is, I think, you know, maybe a first, ex- not a first example, or brr, a beginning example of how, who was not only taking from, you know, I think that'll become clearer as we go into the Hinchcliffe years, mm-hmm. not only taking from, you know, classic British horror, right. particularly Hammer, um, but also grabbing, well, no, I mean, I suppose the first one would have been... Um, Death to the Daleks, um, grabbing onto kind of the kind of weirdo pop cultural things that were sloshing around in the early to mid 70s, like ancient astronauts and the Loch Ness Monster and all that kind of stuff. Oh, I don't know. We have the demons, which we had folk horror, which was kind of a vibe of the early 70s. Yeah, yeah, though it's not really it's not really the whole kind of Eric von I mean well, okay, I mean the, the oh, kind the of von um, Daniken type the stuff. kind of von Daniken thing and you know I always certainly you know as a kid at that time conflated ancient astronauts with Loch Ness monsters and the Usborne book of the unknown mm-hmm. people my age who come from Britain will know the Usborne book of the unknown and um yeah and so I mean it's good to see the Loch Ness monster pop up yeah, in in the U.S. they had Leonard Nimoy doing In Search of, and that was oh, always yes. Sunday morning, and they would always have uh, paranormal type things, uh, right, 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 uh, right, or cryptozoology. So that would be the Loch Ness monster, UFOs, greys, uh, the Von Daniken type thing with ancient astronauts. Yeah. yeah, so that was definitely of the time and. The season, due to the quirk of uh, postponing Terror of the Zygons from season 12 to open up season 13, it's the Robert Banks Stewart bookended season. So we have Terror at the beginning and Seeds of Doom at the end. So it has a different feel to it because of that, I think, because of uh, we have Earthbound Story uh, beginning and ending ending the season. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we and there's Earthbound stories, I mean, scattered through, you know, yeah, really. Really, we yeah. only have... Uh, Two non Earth stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Planet of the Evil and Brain of Morbius. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and Pyramids of Mars is obviously set Earthbound, but set in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it has to be if it's going to be 
basically ripping off Hammer Horror's various Mummy episodes. So yeah. It can't be Mummy AD 1975. Yeah. For the longest time, I think Terror of the Zygons was my favorite Doctor Who story. It's certainly pretty much up there with being unimpeachably good. Mm-hmm. It had all the elements I really liked, and I wish there was more of the Tom Doctor with the Brigadier. We only get right. Robot and Terror of the Zygons, and I think it had a... I really liked the chemistry between Courtney and Baker. I thought it was more effective than latter-day Pertwee in Brigadier okay. chemistry. I think it kind of recaptured more of the earlier, uh, even going back to Troughton and Invasion and it wasn't antagonistic as it was in earlier, like in season seven with Pertwee or, or then more of the unit family in eight and nine. I thought it was a good mix of the doctor was the scientific advisor. And you, you saw that in Robot and you saw that definitely in Terror of the Zygon, why he was called back to figure out with what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it all ends up in the Houses of Parliament. The, the doctor is well, well kind of situated within the machineries of government. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is typical 1970s style emergency. Oil rigs are being attacked. You right. Know, this is North Sea oil. We need to protect this from mm-hmm. um, aliens, Zycons. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of timeless, or it resonates still into the 21st century with the doctor's line of not taking oil being an emergency. You know, it's yeah. the energizing of hydrogen. is. Uh, it's still relevant today, and it's still... If the Zygons would have just waited, or maybe the <laughs> maybe maybe the Doctor didn't defeat the Zygons, with uh, maybe they are secretly dumping CO two into the atmosphere, they would just have to wait for the uh, Earth to turn into the Zygon homeworld a little bit. Yeah, they wouldn't really have to wait very long at this <laughs> Climate point. Climate change, yeah. No, exactly. No. Yeah, they're just impatient. Well, they've been waiting since nineteen seventy five, so yeah. they they've been waiting a good. Uh, yeah, good long uh, thirty-five years for this. Yeah, but that's just I mean, their moment. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they're notoriously impatient people. Yeah, the, the Zygons. So you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think this is you know kind of held up as being pretty much the best. I think kind of alien invasion story. I mean, obviously, really? hmm. alien invasions are something that happens quite regularly on Doctor Who, but right. all of the kind of correct beats on what happens during an alien invasion. Uh, kind of covered basically it's pretty much kind of textbook alien invasion territory even down to the doctor pointing out how silly an alien invasion is which is you know actually to to the aliens themselves which i think you know is a nice kind of sort of i don't know full stop period to alien invasions in general right but um yeah i mean there's just so much and it's you know generally horrific um, mm-hmm. there's when the Zygons, you know, when nurse, whatever she's called, I'm going to call her nurse Ratchet, um, <laughs> turns from a nurse into a Zygon, mm-hmm. you know, that's a genuinely horrific moment. And it's actually, I'm sure I've got my nostalgia goggles on here, but the Zygons are far more queasy and horrific in this 1970s guys than they were in the kind of reproduction uh, 2010s mm-hmm. guys. Um, I don't know why, actually. I think I have a good idea why. Okay. It's the adding of teeth and bulking them up in uh, the modern uh, reincarnation or re- regeneration of the Zygons that make them less scary. It's the suckers and the kind of blobby jelliness of the original Zygons. I think it's more effective to have the sucker 
mouth rather than the pointy teeth uh, chompy mouth. They're more alien and they're less human looking. Yeah, they're less well made. You know, they appear to be fabricated in some sort of way. I mean, I love the fact that if you, you know, when you get photographs of Broton and even the action figure, my action figure of, of, of Broton includes the actor's mic <laughs> in the first, right. um, the first sucker. They're biomorphic. You know, they right. have artificial elements within them and they are just slimy and mutable and kind of axon-like in their mm-hmm. orangeness. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, they're kind of stampy. And I think, I think you're right. They are kind of unnecessarily bulked up. They seem to be really muscular, right. um, like contemporary Zygons. And like, well, why? Why do aliens have to be muscular? You steroids. Know? Steroids. Exactly. They've, been doing, you know? they've been hitting the roids in, since yeah, <laughs> and 75. I mean, I think, you know, again, I think what's, I think, extraordinary, uh, one, of the, one of the many extraordinary and awesome things about um, uh, Terror of Zygons is um, John Woodnut, yep. who plays the Duke of Forgill and Broton. And then John Woodnut, I mean, I don't know how old he was in 1974. I'm trying to do my maths here. About 50. So, you know, he was, uh, he actually looks older, to be honest. Um, I was going <laughs> to say. Lo- cigarettes, probably. So, oh, cigarettes and drink. <laughs> cigarettes and alcohol. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of a, like a middle-aged man, you know, playing. Mm-hmm. It's not a stunt performer. It's not a professional monster person. Right. Which I think, you know, I suspect that the majority of, you know, when uh, Osgood, can't remember the actor's name now, when she transmogrifies into a Zygon, I'm pretty sure that it's not her, the actor, playing that Zygon. Right. Uh, I mean, I think that's maybe where contemporary Zygons go wrong, is that John Woodnut also plays Broton. When actually, if you think about it, there's absolutely no need why he should also have to put on a big pile of makeup. They could have got someone mm-hmm. else to do it, which mm-hmm. I think is what they do nowadays. But the fact that you've got a kind of a spindly, slightly older than his actual age Scotsman also playing the chief alien gives mm-hmm. it a kind of oddness, um, which you don't get where, as, as I as just repeating myself, where, you know, contemporary Zygons are not played by the actors whom they are sort of portraying. Um, they're just playing, paid by kind of monster professionals and stunt people, and that's what they look like. So I wonder if uh, Lilas Walker, who played Sister Lament, also played the, her Zygon form. Oh, that would be an interesting because, thing to try and find out. Because I don't think so, because they had two, two actors, in, in addition to Woodnut, uh, listed as Zygons. So Keith Ashley and Ronald Goh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think, you know, without being... I mean, I'm going to be sexist because that's what the 70s were like. I'm sure they thought that, well, okay, Zygons are male. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, a female actor cannot play a Zygon. Um, Although with Ingrid Oliver, who played Osgood in Zygon Invasion, I think she could have pulled it oh, off. Oh, I think definitely. she definitely could have pulled it off. Yeah, I mean, no. I mean, I'd, what do you do about the Zygon bumps? I mean, I think would be would be an issue. Um, but they're so blobby and tentacled. They're so blobby anyway. I mean, I, I, mean, yeah. I, I, I hope what they wouldn't, if, you know, if Ingrid Oliver had played her Zygon, I hope they wouldn't have gone the Silurian route and have, oh, look, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a girl Zygon. Oh, look at her. Uh, but yeah, I, I, there's a, I mean, John, I mean, John Woodnut is amazing, mm-hmm. and again, it's a really great example of you get a really great actor, right, playing a monster and a character in Doctor Who, you get a really great performance. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's kind of the way to do it. 
Yeah, I think what also works well is just the whole inside the Zygon spaceship with the design of the suckers and the costumes overflow into the set design of the Zygon interior of the spaceship. And it all, uh, with the lighting, it all ties together really well. I think maybe unfortunately or less successfully that the exterior of the spaceship is very angular and it doesn't fit within, I think, a Zygon what I would expect for a Zygon ethos. Ooh. I would expect more access. Uh, no, I, I'm, I, I'm afraid I disagree profoundly with that okay. analysis. All right, well, so um, why? Why why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've always felt that the Zygon spaceship is kind of like a geode. Um, so like it has a kind of an, a sort of a spaceshipy, uh, you know, a kind of flat, angular exterior, but yet its inside is all knobbly, bobbly, and, and orange. So mm. when you break open the geode and, you know, its exterior is just stone, but then the interior is all crystals. Um, when you break open the Zygon spaceship, the interior is all kind of grown, but it's grown on this exterior framework. Yeah, that's an interesting take on it. Haven't yeah. thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, yeah, that, that's how, I mean, I love the Zygon spaceship. I'm mm-hmm. so upset that it gets destroyed and I'm so upset that you can't, I mean, I remember I made a Lego um uh, <laughs> really <laughs> yeah oh yeah i was used to make the all try and make all the spaceships out of lego mm-hmm. um but i yeah i was as soon as i mean you know obviously i had no pictures of the saigon spaceship and i think it's still quite hard to find pictures of the, of the saigon spaceship but i was able to remember what it looked like mm-hmm. and i made it out of lego yeah well that's that's pretty awesome i think the most i ever did out of lego doctor who related was trying to make a tardis out of uh, blue one by four bricks hmm. I never made a TARDIS. Really? Nope. Wasn't interested. Huh. Wasn't huh. Interested. It was the alien, the alien stuff that I liked. Mm-hmm. Did you work on Dalek Saucer or anything like that? It, it, Legos at the time didn't really lend themselves to circular. No, no. I mean, I'm. I I know I tried to make a Dalek, and that mm-hmm. and that's virtually impossible. So I kind of gave up pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, that might be why the Zygon spaceship resonated well with you because it it with it is uh it is a design that could be rendered pretty effectively through legos of the early 1970s oh yeah exactly yeah yeah no which i made i made a zygon spaceship i, I made an x-wing and a tie fighter mm-hmm. and um a u-boat from the land that time forgot i think those are my <laughs> two main memories of like spacey filmy things that i made in the 70s excellent there yeah. you go yeah, it's a good season. So one thing I'd like to talk about it's 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 the music, and I know we're uh, it's Jeffrey Burgoyne. Yep. But normally Camfield would have gone with stock music. I think that would have been his preference often. But by going with Burgoyne, it has this. It just fits so well, I think, with the story and with Camfield's direction and with the DVD, with the restoration of that scene, that, that opening scene where they are landing in the forest, the music suddenly all just worked perfectly for me, that we have the highland kind of lilting, uh, it's almost harp music. I can't, I don't remember the instrument off at the beginning, but then it flows into them, them walking, and it just walking off, off the forest and into the heather. I think the whole musical score of this works so well, and um, it's, it's one of my favorites, and I think that's one of the reasons why I really gravitated to Zygons for the longest time, being one of my favorite stories. It's just musically, it works uh, incredibly well. 
Yeah, I, I, you're, you're, you're far more of a, attuned to music than I am. Um, I'm not going to comment fully, but yeah, no, I mean the, the music is great. Uh, I mean, one thing I, w I was going to touch on is that this, you know, there's a definite kind of upswing, a kind of a rising level of resources that appears to being being spent on the show at this time. It seems mm -hmm. to me. I was actually trying to find out. I was looking through some reference books. And see whether, and I'm sure someone's done this. Well, maybe the maybe the figures aren't aren't available, but there seems to be more money being spent on the show at this point. Hmm. Um, um, and it, it, this seems to be a more well resourced season than the previous season. And mm -hmm. then the season after that seems to be even more well resourced. And I think we get the famous <laughs> piece of analysis. And you know, this is what I was look, looking at. Is you know, basically Hinchcliffe blew the entire budget for. Not only the you know the current season, but also the following season on um, the talents of Wen Chiang. Right. But you know the 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 extravagant nature of the Zygon costuming, um, you know having you know a full unit presence, mm -hmm. stop motion for the for the Scarison, uh, you know the model work on the oil rigs is mm -hmm. you know if you just compare that model work to the model work of the. Um, uh, Power of Kroll, you know, which is kind of a similar situation. Is Eastern oil rig being attacked by a monster? Um, Terror of the Zygons is is basically a lot better. Uh, so yeah, it's you know, I, th I think I think you know, uh, as, as I think we know nowadays, Doctor Who is really really expensive to make, and it always was, and it always is, mm -hmm. and it always has been. And here, actually, in the mid seventies, even though the country is going through spasms of economic decline money's being spent on this show and this show looks really really good the part where fandom i think is generally the consensus where it doesn't look so good is the puppet Loch Ness monster is puppet scarison at the end of part four where you're having the puppet against cso on the thames uh fandom is wrong okay the scarison is uh, the most amazing piece of mod work and puppet work hmm. Absolutely fantastic. I don't. I don't know why people go on about this garrison. Um, one of the things that really kind of irks me, not irks me, but um, as you, as I think regular listeners to the podcast will know, one of my top ten uh, who's is Green Death. Right. And the, uh, if memory serves, the um, the mouth parts of the original maggots were made from rats skulls which means their teeth are particularly pointy and weird looking. When they redid the maggots for some of the special features on the DVD, they did not use rat skulls. Um, uh, I think they used a dog skull and it just makes the maggot look wrong. Hmm. Um, and the reason I say that is that the, is that the, um, uh, I think both the Scarison and also the, um, there's Drashigs. That also, again, they both use a, a canine skull hmm. as the basis for the teeth. And it just makes both the Drashigs and the Scarison, to me, look absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. um, because it grounds these monsters in, you know, a real animal. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of dogs. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in fact, I don't like dogs at all. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not frightened of them. But, you know, the fact that these have a kind of canine, uh, you know, a non-reptilian kind of mouth part just again i'm very fond of my drashig hand puppet right um but it doesn't have the right that doesn't have the right teeth to it it doesn't have these kind of dog teeth to it so no i i will defend the scar the scarison is amazing mm -hmm. and it doesn't look like the Loch Ness monster either that's what's awesome about it, it right. you know a lot of this monster is you know, like a plesiosaur or whatever um it looks like this just horrific 
monster from outer space. It's amazing. I love it. Yeah, the Scarison is is funny in that the Zygons have a symbiotic relationship with the uh, with with the Scarison, and they feed off its lactic fluid, its milk, which they do. Which uh, maybe perhaps that explains the Silurians. Maybe Zygons and Silurians have a connection. Could be. Um, just to kind of rewind a bit. I mean, it was another thing that kind of struck me as being particularly kind of icky and horrible mm. about the Scarison is that the Zygons like suckled on its teats in some sort of way. <laughs> it's like what is, but it's it's like a dog reptile. Like, how does it even have like? things you can see what, what kind of milk does it produce <laughs> you know the whole thing is just kind of you know it's they're kind of, of gross yeah yeah they're just they are they're gross i mean mm-hmm. the the saracen is gross mm-hmm. the the zygons are gross uh it's it's the whole thing is kind of like you know the body horror of john woodnut also being the zygon kind of runs through the entire the entire show mm-hmm. it's, it's great Love it. And Tom, I think, is brilliant in this. And that's another reason why I love this one so much is I, I, I love after Sarah gets trapped in uh, the uh, decompression tank by the Zygon and then he goes and rescues her and then he gets trapped. And then that, oh, look at that moan when he goes into the trance to mm. suspend himself. That is that is eerie it, it still sends sh- oh, yeah, shivers down my spine yeah it's just baker does such a good job of portraying the doctor as otherworldly and not not a human that you you get that and that that plays out throughout the series that they're really trying to up baker being he's an alien he's not human and then sarah comments on that like later in pyramids of mars sort of like uh oh sometimes you don't even and then the doctor finishes seem human and it just works and i think that feeds right into well within um tom baker's characterization of himself and the doctor i think he was more uh like i said last week an, an actor playing the doctor in season 12 but as as he gets more comfortable in the role i think it's more tom baker uh becoming the doctor or the doctor becoming tom baker yeah, and I, I mean, just go back to, again to my previous point. I mean, the fact that you know he dresses, you know, he has Scots, uh, he has a Scottish outfit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, more money is being spent on kind of outfit. You know, the, I'd love that the idea that maybe the Doctor changes his clothes, yeah, um, according to where he happens to be going. Well, well why shouldn't he? Brilliant. You know, Brilliant. that seems like an excellent <laughs> thing to do. Um, I mean, I think you're right. Whereas Pertwee was a kind of you know basically a hippie, so you know he was kind of. Um, you know, was receiving and then projecting out Buddhism and meditation and all mm-hmm. that kind of late sixties, early seventies stuff. Um, Baker actually appears to be the ancient astronaut. Baker is <laughs> is he's not he's not taking on the guise of mysticism. You know, he is mysticism, and the way that he falls into a trance um, compared to you know kind of trance making that Pertwee does hypnotizing Agador or you know whatever um it's a lot more alien and a lot less human yeah um and again you know just to kind of rewind back to being kids 
that scene where the doctor puts Sarah and himself into, you know, suspended animation, a trance. Um, we used to do that at school. We would like, okay, <laughs> we're going to put ourselves into into a trance. Okay, right. This is how the doctor does it. Let's see, let let's see whether we can do it. And of course, we never did because you know it's not it's not it's not that easy. Right. Um, but I can remember think remember I can remember having you know very passionate discussions as a you know eight nine year old. Um, like well, okay, if if we ever get trapped in like a vacuum. And there's no air. We should remember. You can put yourself into a trance, <laughs> right. and all will be well. Yes. And this, that's the kind of stuff that we learn. That, from that, that's boys' own knowledge there that you need. <laughs> Absolutely, because it's very. I mean, like you know, it's like the cliche of quicksand. You know, being trapped in a decompression chamber was one of those things that used to happen a lot to you in the seventies. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, their perils were unbounded for kids in the seventies, and you had to oh, be yeah. aware of quicksand, decompression chambers, Dalek attack, Dalek invasions. And... Fridges were a big thing. We were always being warned about not to go, not not to hide in a fridge. Yeah, because some people would leave their fridges out when they're being taken well by the rubbish hauler or the trash hauler. I guess I don't know, and and I guess in those days fridges locked or something. Anyway. But I was remember always being always being warned about climbing into not climbing into the fridge. Yeah, well, which is something I've never actually done. Um, you didn't have to survive a nuclear blast like uh, Indiana did, Jones did, like <laughs> the Crystal Skull. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the other thing I think what makes the Zygons is to me a, a prototypical a template Doctor Who story. Yeah, one of the knocks against it is it's formulaic, but it's brilliantly executed formula and i don't think something being formulaic is necessarily a bad thing you want no. i mean you look at recipes if you hit on a winning recipe you want to have that dish repeatedly this is a winning combination where you have the small invasion of uh, shape-shifting aliens you have unit and you have unit squatties and some unit action because there's it it's uh it's much like with some of the auton stories where the units out in the woods fighting or shooting after uh, Zygons and whatnot. But then you wind up, the peril is brought into London and that's where the conclusion is. So it's, it's an alien invasion story, shape-shifting aliens. It's a mystery. And then the, the climax is a giant monster in London. What, what's not to like about that? What's wrong with that formula? That shouldn't be a knock against this, against this, this show this is this is no, this is I mean, brilliant execution of doctor who yeah it's i mean i mean you know doctor who who is a science fiction melodrama you know it all all it's got is a formula really and the closer that it can manipulate and make new the various clichés that it has to use then the better it is and you know as uh, you know you have a you know there's a hidden spaceship there's a Loch Ness monster right. there's a creepy old house with like a hidden tunnel, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's a there's a there's a tax taxidermied head with eyes that follow you around the room. Ooh, yeah, you know, yeah, there are yeah, shape shifting yeah. shape shifting aliens, mm -hmm. um, and it all ends up like I can't remember the Harryhausen film where you know the monster attacks London, the you know the uh, I think it, I think it's the Beast from Fifty Thousand Fathoms where the you know the monster attacks Tower Bridge in London, and you end up with a stop motion monster you know attacking the Houses of Parliament. Yeah. I guess you have that you view that you view, you view that from the inside of the Houses of Parliament rather from the outside because the outside would be more expensive, but still it's like wow this is endlessly awesome. Yeah, yeah. As a kid, it's you know, and you know, and obviously I you know I watched 
watch these pretty much with kiddish eyes mm-hmm. it's there's nothing that is not to like here this is an exciting story this is an this yeah. is a story you keep wanting to watch the next episode in and yeah it um works well for me i think it's uh i think it's a the, really the only letdown is that we say goodbye to nick courtney and ian martyr at the end of it and yeah ian has a reprise later on in android invasion but he's playing an android rather than harry for the most of it yeah and we don't see the brigadier until we really whack up continuity with modern undead there's a lot in this season which are my very very favorite mm-hmm. uh who stories what is wrong with this season and why this season is in my top five seasons yeah it's not my favorite season because every time and i you know i have to respect my young brain Every time we return to Earth, we don't have the Brigadier. Yeah. And, you know, the sense of disappointment that I got as a nine-year-old that when we have the android invasion, that it's some other kind of no-name right. officer. And then even worse, when the unit are really kind of, you know, working hard to contain a, a horrific monster in the Seeds of Doom, it's still some kind of no-name yeah. no name commander who I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that. That was just a just a bitter disappointment for me for this season. And I had that same disappointment too, because even though I had seen the Brigadier twice, I had seen him in Robot and Zygon. It felt wrong that the Brigadier was off in Geneva in Android Invasion, and then it was uh, I can't remember who it was in uh, Seeds of Doom off the top of my head, but it, it, it's like you said, it's this no name commander calling in RAF strikes on the Chase Mansion. It's it just seemed wrong it, it doesn't wrong. seem to fit because that's you know that's the brigadier's job the brigadier right. is the one who calls in rf strikes on mansions <laughs> not some like <laughs> some guy that we've never heard of before um right. and i think it is you know and again i'm not blaming nick courtney obviously no, you know not at all no. you know he needed to work he needed, he needed the work and he had the work elsewhere i am sort of blaming the production you know the script mm-hmm. script editing like okay can we try and find some you know Rather than just have, like, Brigadier Light, let's get someone else. I don't know who that would be. Or even if you scheduled it differently. So if you say, okay, we are going to make this run, and yeah, Hinchcliffe running the production office wants to phase out unit and go off-world, and, you know, Holmes wants to do Hammer Horror. If you would have done a recording block or a production block as we're going to do Android Invasion and we're going to do Seeds of Doom and we're going to do them in one run, basically, right. one stretch. Right. Then we can book these actors for this period of time and say, look, you have two months or a month of guaranteed work here. Uh, can we can we work it in? Yep. But rather than, okay, you just have a few lines here, a few lines here, a few lines here. The, what actor is going to – the pay isn't. It just, it's not – it's not there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, you know, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure, you know, that had, and maybe they did, you know, had 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 Letts and Hinchcliffe, um, Holmes, etc. Had they gone to the higher ups, of the BBC and said, listen, you know, we, t- we don't we don't want to record in order. Um, we want to record according to availability of actors. I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure there was some rule of the BBC which says, no, sorry, you know, that's not that's well, not the way we do things at the BBC. You need to mm-hmm. record in transmission order. 
Um, no, you can't book. You can't. You can't do this. Even though you know, arguably, it would have saved a bit of money because you mm -hmm. know they would have been able to lump all the Earthbound stories in kind of one block, etc., etc. Right. Um, you know, I don't think though. I mean, I suspect the issue was there wasn't the flexibility of thinking um, well, with the BBC higher ups. But they didn't record in order, or at least they didn't do in broadcast order because Zygons was carried over. And Pyramid of Mars, I True. believe, was the yeah. first 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 story recorded in for season 13 so yeah no, that's true true yep so it, it could have worked i think it, it really had to do with actor availability and with phasing out a unit out of doctor who there wasn't a role for nick but i think also i mean i think it, you know this, this was still seen as a kid's and this is what i i guess what i'm meaning about the bbc higher-ups you know this is this is still seen like still a you know it's an important show for the bbc but it's not a prestigious show you know this is popular kids entertainment Mm -hmm. the the people in charge of this organization would not have bent whatever rules they happen to have in order to make sure that you know the right actor was available um right. i'm quite certain well you know you, if you can't get nick courtney just just make it some other colonel then no mm -hmm. one will care the kids won't care it's you know right. it'll, you know it's a it's a weekly adventure serial no one minds right. um and i think you know again in that way the the people who are in a kind of overall charge of this, I you know over and above the script editor and um and produce and production team, um they you know they didn't care. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the missteps of uh, the Hinchcliffe era is the abrupt ending rather than a kind of a gradual ending to unit stories. And Hinchcliffe, this is I think falls solely on the shoulders of Hinchcliffe, not realizing what a brilliant character he had in Harry Sullivan and how right. it worked really well. That that season twelve time team worked really well. But that's not to take away from the stories, the remaining stories in season thirteen. They're very good stories. And the next one, uh, Planet of Evil is an amazing story just uh, on production values alone. And this is where we have uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So we are moving into the remit of Hammer Horror in, at this point. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the, an amazing mashup of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Forbidden Planet. It's, you know, yeah, it's yeah. those two things just kind of scrunched together to make some, and, you know, with a, with a kind of a dollop of, of a kind of a sort of a, a bitter, badly formed Star Trek, which makes it amazing. Because instead of, you know, the bridge of this spaceship being, you know, a place of harmony and good sense, you know, it's a place of kind of idiocy and argument, um, you know, with some nobility thrown in, obviously. But, you know, the spaceship, which is in kind of Star Trek terms, a place of refuge in general, mm -hmm. and where this is where everyone lives and everyone right. has a nice time and everyone's good to each other. That's absolutely not the case for the and the Morestrian right, spacecraft. Right. It's just you know they even have like you know they even you know they have like a, even have a kind of a special body ejection area. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, uh, Planet of Evil, amazing, love it. Yeah, nothing wrong with the Planet of Evil. I think this is Prentice Hancock's best uh, role in Doctor Who, where he plays uh, Salamar as the yeah the young, inexperienced, hyper out of this league captain of the Morestan spaceship. Exactly. He's the reverse. He's like what Captain Kirk would be if he was an actual captain of something. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> the drama, I think what they wanted to play out here and it, 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 this, you know, this is Lewis Marx's third story after planet of the giants and day of the Daleks, right? That, um, he wanted this dynamic of, the old seasoned 
second in command, Vyshinsky, played Vyshinsky, yes. uh, brilliantly by yeah, Ewan Solon. And then the young Hancock and uh, playing Salmar. And it's almost as if this role was written for Hancock because it fits his <laughs> trademark style. Uh, I wouldn't say Shatner-esque style of acting, but it, it it's all very easily caricatured style of acting, apprentice Hancock type acting. And you combine that with Fred Yeager, who's playing Sorensen, it's a really strong guest cast. And Slayton and Baker, again, really do well in their chemistry and their dynamic together. And this is the uh, continuation of the softening of Sarah Jane's character of, you know, becoming more of a partner right. to the doctor rather than being this skeptical adversary. And this is precisely, I guess, what he needs at that time with yeah. in the, in the show with, with Harry gone. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, 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 I mean, she keeps that kind of investigative edge of being, you know, a journalist of some kind, but also becomes, I mean, this is really where you kind of you you get this kind of gelling of yeah. the Doctor and Sarah being being kind of best friends, and this idea of mm-hmm. the Doctor having a friend with Pertwee. Right. You know, Liz Shaw was an equal. Um, Joe Grant was a daughter. With Baker, these are two people who there's no there's no sexual relationship of of any kind. They're just really good mates. And they're having amazing, you know, amazing and actually mm-hmm. super scary and intimidating adventures. Um, and as we'll see in the next episode, well, actually in this episode too, um, Sarah is absolutely prepared to, to have these adventures. You know, she's not frightened unless, you know, it's genuinely frightening. Mm-hmm. The, the situation itself does not scare her. What happens within the situation is periodically frightening, but the fact that she's on an alien planet fighting an antimatter right. monster doesn't scare her at all. And you know, and in the yeah. next episode in uh, Pyramids of Mars*, you know, <laughs> if she has to shoot a box of gelatinite at the base of a of a of a pyramidal spaceship run by evil mummies and a you know an evil from the the beginning of time, yeah, um, she'll do it. She's a woman of action. She's super capable and super competent and right. ready for anything. If if she had continued on, and with the direction that Hinchcliffe wanted the character to go, I wonder if Sarah would have moved towards an Emma Peel-type woman of action that Leela was under Hinchcliffe and Holmes. No, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think I think that would have spoiled her, because, I mean, I think the fact that she's sort of like an everywoman, you know, she doesn't have to be kind of a leather-clad, karate-kicking mm. Um, pussy galore style person. She's just like, yeah. again, super competent and is able to adapt and re- react to any situation and, you know, turn it around, basically. She's mm-hmm. just amazing. And Slayton wasn't afraid to let Sarah be scared. No, not at all. And she didn't push back at screaming and being terrified. And I mean, I've said this many times that she is the perfect proxy for the young audience, the ch- the children, the you know the preteens in this audience, for the level of fear. If Sarah isn't scared, then we don't need to be scared. But when Sarah is scared, it's really scary. And it, that that creepiness that where she gets kind of s- 
spooked out in the jungle on um, Zeta Minor yeah. with with uh, with the antimatter beast and then the uh, um, just the changes in temperature and just walking through the jungle or running through the jungle with the splashing. She and Tom really sell this peril that they're in or this the, the creepiness and her fear when Tom falls in in the cliffhanger, I oh, think God, in part yeah. three, yeah, into the into antimatter. That's an emotional cliffhanger. We know the doctor is going to be okay, but the fear, or the 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 horror that she's experienced of seeing her friend fall into this antimatter pit, it's it, it's conveyed so well by Slayton's just subtle acting. I think both of them, they both of them, their acting tells us when we should be frightened and when we shouldn't mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's almost like it's you know their acting is almost like a musical score. You know, the the music of a show like this, you know, tells you when you should be feeling various things. Mm-hmm. They're acting as well. You know, when when they are when they're fixing a problem, when they're being uber confident, you know, you know, you're it's yes, you kind of root for them. Mm-hmm. And when they're frightened and in and confused, that's when you're also frightened, confused. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Well, the, you mentioned the scoring. This is Simpson again, and if memory serves, his his use of percussion in this, especially in the jungle, and I think it's, it might be like a rattlesnake uh, type kind of clattering bones. Or yeah, maybe sort of, yeah, just kind of it's, very it, intimidating. Oh, it's very perfect for this, and with uh, Maloney's direction, he worked really well, telling Simpson what he had in mind, and Simpson, I think, responded. That kind of a partnership between a director and composer worked really well and uh, just just with uh yeah just with the design i think it was murray leach if i if yes, leach. yep yep so with his with his jungle design and then i think this is where where i think seem more expensive well i they spent a lot of money on the jungle or they uh acquired a lot of things and they well you can always throw money on it and eventually enough money will improve things generally right but it's the skill of the people on this team right that is really evident it's like when you have an employee or a coworker or someone who's right at the cusp of the next level and you're getting them at a <laughs> at a really inexpensive rate but they're ready to explode onto onto the next next level and become too expensive to for 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 you to employ or keep on keep on there you you have this brilliance there and i think that's what with like with murray leach's designs that we saw that in arc and space and we're seeing that again with the jungle in on zeta minor that this is somebody who's incredibly talented and and he's still working at the BBC. He's not gone off freelance. He's not been picked up by movies or, you know, production companies. So it's the amazing amount of creativity and skill that BBC has on staff that all kind of converge. And even when you're spending money, it it amplifies or maximizes that pound that you're spending. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the BBC was, you know, was, I mean, obviously it doesn't really do this anymore, but it was, it was a huge, you know, it was a training scheme, you know, it was teaching, it was taking kids who wanted to do stuff like this and allowing, you know, and training them to do it right. And then of course they, then all the good ones, you know, John Friedlander, Rog, Roger Murray Leach, et cetera, et cetera, you know, are quickly snapped up by, um, 
Hollywood and the film industry. I've just remembered uh, another spaceship that I made out of Lego. Is I, I made an Oculoid. Oh, the Oculoid Tracker in this. Yeah. I love the Oculoid Tracker. Yeah. I, had a, I, I, don't, I don't know what to think about when I was a kid. I loved things that had one eye because I was a big fan of um, Alpha Centauri. <laughs> but the Oculoid Tracker, yeah. Yeah, it's. I love the Oculoid Tracker. It's a cool. It's super cool. It's a drone it's a surveillance drone. device. Yeah, it's before its time. Exactly. Except it can also track you. Woo, kabuki. So, what do you think about the ending of uh, Sorensen has pretty much committed murder on a, or at least gotten his team killed, and the doctor kind of looks the other way. Yes, I mean, I think I think that everyone knows that that's what's wrong at the end of Planet of Evil. But you know. Uh, there's ambiguity all the way through this. You know, the monster mm-hmm. is obviously doing an evil thing, um, but the Doctor makes friends with it by going down into its pit and kind of, you know, as I said, making friends with it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I think one would have preferred having the, if Sorensen had, you know, I don't know, fallen into a, another pit or something and been made into a skeleton or, I don't know, eaten in some sort of interesting way. Um, but, you know, yeah. he didn't. Mm-hmm. And I mean, unlike a more contemporary doctor, um, the doctor doesn't really punish. Um, uh, I'm thinking of Family of Blood, where the doctor weirdly imposes mm-hmm. a bunch of strange punishments on his enemies. Um, the doctor kills and destroys uh, things, people who do wrong, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. He doesn't mm-hmm. punish mm-hmm. them. Well, it's. I think the style of the writing in the seventies was to let the story take care of the baddie. Like Tobias Vaughn got shot by Cybermen. Yep. That was the ending. The Doctor didn't have to deal with the cleanup of that. Or like in Ark in Space with Noah being taken over by the Weirin. It wasn't the Doctor who had to decide to take out Noah. It was Noah himself who decided to sacrifice himself and destroy the Weirin that way. So I think it's a sign of a different type of storytelling of the... Well, the human nature was a new adventure, so of the 90s, where kind of maybe creeped in in later Doctor Who, where the Doctor is the agent of judgment and execution, rather than trying to craft a story where the Doctor points a gun at Davros, and, you know, and like in Resurrection, where I'm here to kill you, Davros, type right. Doctor. Right, 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 yeah. Yeah, and it's, I, I wish they could have found, well, I mean, you know, it, would, it wouldn't have been that hard to have found a an effective way for kind of, you know, I mean, Sorensen gets cured. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the, and I think it's, I think it's then, you know, I think it was then kind of mean then to kind of then punish him after he's been cured of being mm-hmm. possessed by, you know, evil antimatter creature. Yeah. Sort of, or evil antimatter stuff. But yeah, he should have exploded or something at the end. Or he had to carry the uh, antimatter back or fallen into the pit and not recover or something. He thought, Maybe maybe he could have fallen into the pit and become like a new antimatter monster, be kind of doomed to kind of, you know, wander the planet as a monster forever. Yeah, yeah. The transformation was too complete or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, never mind. Yeah. Next time, eh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we've gotten uh, <laughs> two sixths, uh, one third of the way through. That is uh, that is true. Season 13. It's, it's, uh, a, it's a good season. It's uh, probably a good place to park it and come in on. The all-time classic Pyramids of Mars next time. Ooh, Pyramids of Mars. Uh, why not? So let's do that. These are good stories that deserve talking about because they're really good. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening to episode 162 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I have been 
uh, shape shifting into my Zygon form with Ben. And I, and I have been stealing <laughs> antimatter to power my civilization with David. Until Pyramids of Mars next time on the Metabulous Two podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh.